Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. Thanksgiving is about family. It's the time of year we come together, make too much food, and celebrate the ties that bind us. Usually, it's a happy holiday, filled with tradition and a chance to see relatives we don't see every day. But for some families, Thanksgiving can be fraught with tension. Because sometimes, those ties are holding together the facade of a happy family. It's a front you put on. You smile for pictures around your perfectly decorated table. Tempers flare, liquor loosens the tongue, and the truth comes hatefully out. In Chester, Virginia, on Thanksgiving of 2017, a youth minister did the unthinkable to his family. This wasn't one of those families where the hostility was obvious. From all appearances, it looked like a happy marriage with grown children who seemed close. What happened that Thanksgiving night seemed sudden, shocking, and horrific. Because it was an annihilation. But there were secrets in that family. Police had been called to that house many times before. And Christopher Gaddis, youth minister and family man, wore a mask. Only those closest to him knew what he really was. And they paid the price. Welcome to Episode 78, Thanksgiving Triple Homicide, Youth Minister and Murderer Christopher Gaddis. It was around 11.30 p.m. on Thanksgiving night when Chesterfield County Police responded to a call from an alarm system from a home on Dogwood Circle in Chester, Virginia. A silver-haired, 58-year-old man sat on the front porch steps. A kitschy sign hung over his head that said, Welcome to the porch. There was a young man lying dead three feet away from him. As the first officer approached the house, Christopher Gaddis said, he threatened me. The officer ordered Gaddis to lie face down on the ground with his hands behind his back. He cuffed him and then walked over to where the young man lay. He pulled up his shirt and saw that he had been shot multiple times. The officer said he was unresponsive. Then he asked Christopher Gaddis how many people were shot. Gaddis said three. There were two more in the house. The officer asked him why. Christopher Gaddis said, They kept threatening me. They threatened to kill me. The officer then read him as Miranda writes, but Gaddis kept talking. He said they're all probably dead. They all came after me. But if they all came after him, why were they all shot in the back? I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. Situated between the James and Appomattox Rivers, Chester, Virginia is also surrounded by the cities of Richmond, Petersburg, Hopewell, and Colonial Heights. Chester is considered a suburb of Richmond, the capital city of the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Richmond metropolitan area has a population of 1.2 million people. 
The original downtown of Chester was just a stop at the intersection of the Richmond and Petersburg Railroad. With a long history of being surrounded by larger communities, Chester Station was even the scene of a battle during the American Civil War. Chester, with a population of just over 20,000, is a small, prosperous town. The crime rate is extremely low, and the medium home costs $200,000. It's small but diverse, with good schools and a tight community. It's the kind of place you want to raise children. It's where Christopher and Jeanette Gaddis lived and worked. Jeanette as a bookkeeper for a real estate firm and Gaddis as a youth ministry director at Grace Lutheran Church. They did appear to be a happy couple, active in their community. It was Christopher's third marriage and Jeanette's second. He never had any children of his own, but Jeanette had two. Jeanette Lynn Lau Gaddis was born on July 16, 1959, in Fort Hood, Texas. Her parents, Art and Wilma, raised her as a Lutheran with German heritage. The family moved to Virginia when Jeanette was still a child. Jeanette attended Colonial Heights High School, and she graduated from the College of William and Mary with a Bachelor of Business Administration. Both schools are in Virginia. She married a man named Holdra Coons in May of 1984. They had two children together. Adam and Candace, who went by Candy. From what I can tell, the couple was living in California when their children were born. Candy in December of 1986 and Adam in October of 1988. Candy's Facebook page indicates the family was living in Singapore in 1993. That's because Candy's father, Holger, served as president, CEO, and the regional business unit head for Nestle Health Sciences Healthcare Nutrition Business Unit in Africa, Oceania, and Asia. Jeanette and Holger divorced in June 2000, and from Holger's resume, he was still living in China until 2007. Candy graduated from high school in Virginia 2004, so it would seem that after the divorce, Jeanette moved the kids back to the States and to Virginia to be near her parents. She started working in accounting at Napier Realtors in Virginia in 2002. She had worked there for 15 years at the time of her death. She is described by friends as bubbly, outgoing, fun, and even loud. Her Facebook page shows a happy-looking woman, very fit, who ran in charity races and was extremely close to her children and popular in her community. She had actually gone to high school with Christopher Gaddis, and they reconnected at a 30-year high school reunion in 2007. They were married on August 8, 2008, at the Grace Lutheran Church. Christopher Raymond Gaddis was born on July 28, 1959, in Petersburg, Virginia, to parents James and Elena. Like I said, he also attended Colonial Heights High School, and then he attended Virginia State University. Before he became a full-time youth minister at Grace Lutheran, he worked in his family's business, Lighthouse Furniture and Appliance. He was first married in 1980 to a woman named Carla. They didn't divorce until February of 1998, after 18 years of marriage. There is no public mention of the reason for their divorce, 
but he did marry his second wife, Kimberly, less than a year later. He and Kimberly divorced in August of 2003. After his third marriage to Jeanette in 2008, he worked in the furniture store until he became director of youth ministry at Grace Lutheran in 2014. Christopher was always characterized as the quieter of the couple. He was more sedate. His neighbors said he was a kind man who would do anything for you. Though, of course, that's become a trope in true crime. He was just the nicest man. No one would think he could do this. And that's often true. Good people do awful things all the time. But I'm not sure that Christopher Gaddis, youth minister, supposed family man, and good neighbor, was all that nice and wholesome. In 2010, Christopher was charged with misdemeanor public intoxication. After paying a $25 fine, the charges were dropped. After the murders, a friend of his claimed that he used to drink but had quit. But that doesn't line up with the seven calls to police over the Gaddis's eight years of marriage, one involving what was called a disturbance with a weapon. However, none of these calls ever brought charges or even official reports until the final one. Christopher was a man with a temper, and he was definitely a drinker and had shown violence in the past. On September 5, 2012, Kevin DeFord was delivering newspapers with his 19-year-old son. DeFord's son threw a newspaper into Christopher's driveway, then continued on around the cul-de-sac. As they drove past Christopher's house, Christopher threw the newspaper into DeFord's open window, hitting him in the face. DeFord's son got out of the vehicle to confront Christopher, but Christopher flashed a box cutter at him. The son put his hands up and backed away as Kevin DeFord called the police. Christopher's attorney was able to get the charge dismissed after he apologized to Mr. DeFord and his son and paid a $1,000 fine. I'm sorry, but isn't that what newspaper carriers do? Throw your newspaper onto your driveway? For some reason, this angered Christopher Gaddis. By Thanksgiving of 2017, the thing that was bothering Christopher Gaddis was his stepdaughter and her boyfriend. Born in 1986, Candy Coons was a world traveler. After living overseas as a child with her parents, she had lived all over the place in the U.S., including Iowa and, most recently, Oregon. She got her doctorate in physical therapy from Radford University in 2016. She then won a 3MT Judges' Choice Award and went on to compete at the Conference of Southern Graduate Schools. It's an event where graduate students present speeches about their research and its significance to a layperson in just three minutes using only one presentation image. It's safe to say that Candy was a high achiever. Her Facebook is also filled with many happy photos, beautiful pictures of her snapped all over the world. She was a pretty brunette girl with bohemian style. She had several piercings and a sleeve tattoo, and she had a little dog she adored named Toby. Her boyfriend was Andrew Ellis Buthorn. He was born March 18, 1981, in Olympia, Washington. Andrew graduated from Olympia High School in 1999. He went on to graduate with a major in history from Marymount College in Arlington, Virginia. He went back to Washington, where he got his doctorate in physical therapy 
at the University of Puget Sound. Andrew loved playing sports, particularly golf, and his Facebook page shows his passion for golf and playing guitar, riding his bike, coffee, and craft beer. In an interview, Andrew's grieving father described him as, quote, a Civil War buff who was unique, egg-headed, outgoing, caring, funny, kind, and someone who wanted to serve his fellow humans. Though they had lived in Virginia around the same time, Candy and Andrew met in Eugene, Oregon, at a continuing education workshop. He seems a bit bohemian, too, and they looked like a really sweet couple. He and Candy both became traveling physical therapists on contract with AMN Healthcare. In both Andrew and Candy's obituaries, they are described as the love of each other's lives. They started dating in March 2017. Andrew's mother Nancy said after their first date that they were like two peas in a pod. Nancy even said she was really attached to Candy. She said the couple were smitten with each other and would light up when the other one walked into the room. Nancy told reporters that she knew Andrew and Candy would have gotten married. In September, Andrew and Candy moved to Virginia. They planned to look for jobs as they did traveling physical therapy. It's not clear where they were living at this time, though they later moved in with Candy's mother and stepfather in November. It was originally only supposed to be for a few days, but it took about two weeks, and according to an interview Andrew's family later gave, he had found a job at a nursing home in Winchester, Virginia. He told his family he had moved out of the Gaddis home. Andrew's mother said he had driven back to spend Thanksgiving with Candy and called his family in Washington that day. He told her that he and Candy next planned to move to Yuma, Arizona for their jobs. His parents were thrilled because they own a winter home in Arizona. Andrew's mother said that when she talked to him on Thanksgiving, he said that he was having a great time, that he was helping out around the house and had painted the fence around the Gaddis home. But conflicting reports say that the couple was still living with Christopher and Jeanette, which was a source of friction. I'm honestly not sure because of the different accounts of what happened, but several details make me believe Andrew had moved out, and it was just Candy who was staying at the Gaddis home. Christopher had agreed to a short-term arrangement, but after a couple of weeks, he was growing more and more angry. And he always got mad if Jeanette's children stayed longer than a few days. Candy's younger brother Adam didn't live there either, but often visited. I'm sure Andrew just didn't want to involve his parents in that drama. He didn't want them to worry. That's why he was so upbeat in his call. Or, maybe, like Candy and Jeanette, he was choosing to ignore Christopher's hostility. Because of their chosen careers as traveling physical therapists, I don't think Andrew and Candy meant to stay long in Virginia. But I imagine that as a couple, their company, AMN Healthcare, may have had difficulty placing them in the same city. But whatever the real arrangement was, Christopher Gaddis had made his feelings clear in the two days before Thanksgiving. He wanted the couple out. I'm sure that Jeanette and her daughter wanted to spend the holiday together and were just enduring Christopher's hostile attitude. With his history of temper tantrums, they may not have taken him seriously. It's hard to say, 
Relationships between step-parents and their stepchildren can be difficult, especially considering that Candy did not grow up with Christopher. Her mother married him when Candy was 22. She was the maid of honor. She was now 30 years old, but had not lived at home full-time since going to college. I doubt she had ever grown close to Christopher. A friend of Candy's said that she had never heard Candy say an unkind word about her stepfather. Quote, the family appeared happy. She also said, quote, they were always posting pictures of being together, cooking around the house, and always enjoying time together. We all know Facebook is not a real reflection of people. Most of us show our best side on social media. And Candy definitely would not be the first person to keep her family problems private. Christopher never had any children of his own. Though he was always married, he rarely had to share his wife's attention with anyone before. And he probably was not only jealous, but resented his loss of privacy. And Christopher did have his adult nephew staying at the house as well. Maybe the nephew was invited as a buffer. We know a lot about what happened in the Gaddis house over these couple of days. Text messages were made public at trial, and Jeanette had even filmed her husband on her phone. It shows an angry man, growing more hostile and hateful. And though Jeanette thought she had taken a step to be safe, she was wrong. I'm going to pause now for a final word from our sponsors. The temperature in most public places is only comfortable for about 80% of the population. Everyone's comfort level is different. In your office, you probably freeze or you're sweltering. And not feeling thermally comfortable can lead to lost productivity and can leave you feeling mentally exhausted. EmberWave is the first wearable device that helps you feel cooler or warmer at the press of a button. You wear the EmberWave like a watch with a face on the inside of your wrist. It uses a thermoelectric module to cool you down or warm you up. It's proven to reduce stress and improve improve sleep by activating the intro-receptive regions of the mind that control social and emotional pleasure. Remember getting overheated as a kid and your mom would run your wrist under cold water at the sink? Well, that's how EmberWave works. You just press activate when you need a burst of heating or cooling wherever you are. Ember pairs with your mind and body to make you feel more comfortable in minutes. Use Ember when you're trying to fall asleep, after a workout, and definitely in your office. I am always freezing on airplanes, so I use Ember when I travel and feel a remarkable difference when I press activate. Ember is offering my listeners $60 off. To get this limited offer, go to embrwave.com slash sftc and the discount will automatically be applied at checkout. That's $60 off your order today. Go to embrwave.com slash sftc. With the holidays just around the corner, there's one gift that thousands of moms are calling the best gift ever. I really love to give personalized gifts, and I often give framed photos of my kids to family. This year, I've got something really special for the grandparents. Skylight Frame is a touchscreen photo frame you can update instantly by email from anywhere, and you can preload it with your favorite photos for that perfect personalized gift. It only takes about 60 seconds to set up and connect to your wireless network, so it's basically plug and play, and everyone in the family can 
can email photos to the frame and they will appear in seconds. Tens of thousands of families use Skylight to stay connected. Skylight Frame has a gorgeous 10-inch touchscreen and you can swipe through the photos with your finger. It's a black frame with a white mat so it looks as stylish as any real photo frame and is a beautiful addition to any home. And Skylight Frames come with 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your Skylight, they will offer you a full refund. I'm excited to see the look on Nana's face when we plug in her Skylight Frame. She is going to be delighted. As a special holiday offer, you can get $10 off of your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com and enter the promo code CRIME. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com and enter code CRIME. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E.com, promo code CRIME. Holiday shopping can be such a pain, with the parking and the lines and numerous stops to get to everyone on your list. That's why I love to shop online, but I'm picky about online retailers because I want to give my loved ones the best quality of products, and I trust Bombas. Since Tennessee decided to skip fall this year, I ordered the Bombas Merino Wool Knee-High Socks for myself. They are naturally moisture-wicking and not at all itchy or rough. I tend to be cold-natured, and these are not only cozy warm, they are super comfortable. And for the holidays, I often want to give my family something they need and everyone needs socks socks are the most requested clothing item in homeless shelters think about that it's such a simple request but such a necessary item bombas socks were created to change that for every pair you buy bombas donates a pair to someone in need and this holiday season you'll be buying your loved ones the most comfortable socks ever invented they are built with extra cushioning and special arch support that's not too tight it's more like a hug for your feet designed with special comfort innovations colors patterns length and styles. Bombas are perfect for the whole family. Even your pickiest relative will love these socks. And since Bombas gives a pair of socks to someone in need for every purchase, you're really giving two gifts. Go to bombas.com slash southernfried and get 20% off any purchase during their big holiday sale. It goes through November 18th through December 5th. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash southernfried for 20% off. Bombas.com slash southernfried. On November 21st, 2017, two days before Thanksgiving, Christopher was drinking while the rest of the family played a board game. Christopher came in the room and started yelling at Candy and Andrew. He wanted them out. Jeanette stood up, trying to calm him down, and he shoved her. And then he pulled back his fist as if he was going to punch her. Christopher's nephew, whose name has been withheld publicly, got in the middle and stopped his uncle from hurting Jeanette. After this fight calmed down, Jeanette went and got Christopher's gun and gave it to his nephew who was spending the night. She told him, I'm scared he's going to use this. The nephew left the next morning, taking the gun with him. But the problem was, Christopher Gaddis owned more than one gun. Over the next 48 hours, his anger only grew and he continued to drink. At 6 p.m. on Thanksgiving night, Candy and Andrew were in the backyard hot tub. Christopher again confronted the couple, this time yelling that they had to leave immediately. Jeanette heard Christopher, came running, and tried to step in. But she also recorded Christopher yelling at Candy and Andrew on her phone. And then Christopher began yelling at her, all while she was still recording. After this, Christopher went upstairs to his bedroom, and then he began sending a bizarre series of text messages. 
At 9.40 p.m., Christopher texted Jeanette, Please, please stop threatening me. I am so scared. Please leave me alone. I am in fear of my life. I feel you want to kill me. Please let me live. At 9.41 p.m., he texted, I just want to live. Please, please. Oh. Over the next 13 minutes, he texted, Stop telling me you want to kill me. And stop scaring me. I'm so afraid. At 9.58 p.m., he texted, You're hurting me. At 10.10 p.m., he texted, Please don't come in my room to hurt me. At 10.27 p.m., he texted, Please don't come after me. Thanks. At 10.30 p.m., he texted, You want to hurt me. I'm so scared. You and Candy want to kill me. After all of this craziness, at 10.48 p.m., Jeanette texted Christopher's nephew and said, He's over the edge. We have left him alone. We'll send you his last text. I think he's doing mind games. At 10.57 p.m., Christopher's nephew replied and said, What in the world? Please be careful. I don't know what he's doing, but I think you two should stay somewhere else if you can. The nephew texted again a few minutes later. He said, This is a very strange message. I don't believe he's scared at all. I don't know why he would say that. I won't message him. For Candy, Andrew, and your sake, I really think you two should stay somewhere else. Then at 11.06 p.m., the nephew texted again and said, The more I learn about my family on that side, the less I want anything to do with it. I am reading the text verbatim, and I'm not sure why he kept saying you two instead of you three unless he meant that Jeanette should leave with Christopher, which would be really strange. The only thing I can think is that this is more proof Andrew really had moved out and was just there for Thanksgiving. And the nephew thought he should go home and Candy and Jeanette should find a place to stay. At this point, Christopher had stopped texting Jeanette. Despite the nephew's urging, Jeanette probably thought that Christopher had fallen asleep. He had been drinking, and she thought she had taken away his gun. It was Thanksgiving night. I'm sure they were all relieved that Christopher went to bed without further drama. By 11.15 p.m., Jeanette, Candy, and Andrew were hanging out in the kitchen playing a board game. But Christopher was awake, and he grabbed his Taurus 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol and three fully loaded magazines. Then he went downstairs to the kitchen. They all saw him coming and jumped up, trying to run. He shot Jeanette first, then Candy. Andrew managed to run out the door, but Christopher chased him, shooting him in the back. Outside, he shot him twice in the stomach. When the smoke cleared, Christopher had emptied the gun's 11 rounds. One fully loaded magazine was left on the kitchen floor, and a third was still in Christopher's pocket. After killing Jeanette, Candy, and Andrew, Christopher called his home alarm company and told them to send police, but he didn't say why he needed them. This was at 11.27 p.m. Right around 11.30 p.m., the first officer, N.C. Frazier, showed up at the Gaddis house on Dogwood Circle. Frazier didn't know exactly what he was showing up to. He just got a call from the alarm company. He found Christopher sitting on the front steps. 
Andrew was lying dead only three feet away from Christopher. In the officer's body cam footage, you can see Frazier approaching the house using a flashlight to guide him. The camera footage shows Andrew, with steam coming from his body due to the cold, lying face up on the lawn in a bloodstained t-shirt. As Frazier approached the house, that's when Christopher said that Andrew had threatened him. As I said in the opening, the officer had Christopher lie down on the ground and handcuffed him, but he didn't read him as Miranda rights right away. Frazier later said he was detaining Christopher without placing him under arrest because he was attempting to get an understanding of the situation before reading him his rights. But then he walked over and lifted up Andrew's shirt. He saw that he had been shot in the stomach. He reported that he was unresponsive, but Andrew was already dead. That's when he asked Christopher how many people were shot. Christopher said three, two inside the house and one in the yard. He seemed dazed, but not crying. Frazier asked Christopher why he shot them, and Christopher said, They kept threatening me. They threatened to kill me. It was at this point that the officer read Christopher his Miranda rights. This could have been a crucial mistake had there not been video evidence and the text messages to back up what Christopher said. It didn't matter, though. Christopher kept talking. He told him they were probably all dead and, quote, they all came after me. The officer asked Christopher if he had been drinking, and he claimed that he had only had three drinks. Then Christopher told Frazier that he shot everyone, quote, when they all ganged up on me. Everything Christopher said was recorded on Frazier's body cam, another helpful piece of evidence, despite the Miranda issue. Because at this point, Christopher had been read his rights, but had kept on ranting. Officer Frazier radioed in to his station, quote, I have one detained. Be advised, he shot three people. I got one male subject on the ground. He's got two gunshots to the stomach. Sir, we have two females down in the kitchen. When backup arrived, the officers entered the Gaddis house. They found the gun lying on a table just inside the door. Christopher Gaddis was taken away as police checked for signs of life in the two women inside. Candy and Jeanette were dead. Jeanette was shot once in the back. It would seem that Candy took the brunt of her stepfather's rage. She was shot multiple times in the back, chest, upper torso, and right thigh. Police found the video on Jeanette's phone of the argument with her, Candy, Andrew, and Christopher when he had confronted the young couple in the hot tub. Even more chilling... They also found that Candy's phone had been recording everything when she was shot. In the recording, you can hear screaming, and you can briefly see Andrew behind a table begging for his life. He said, I will go out. I will leave. But it was too late. Christopher Gaddis meant to kill them all. His rage may have been focused the most on Candy, but at this point, he wanted them all dead. It was an annihilation. Christopher Gaddis was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of using a firearm and the commission of a felony. He was held without bond and was placed on suicide watch. Following Christopher's arrest, the church suspended him without pay and then released this statement, quote, Members of Grace Lutheran Church are deeply saddened by the loss of life last night 
as a result of three individuals being shot in Chester, and this tragedy included members of Grace Lutheran Church. Grace Lutheran Church has experienced many hardships over the years, but this heartbreak has unique challenges. Grace Lutheran Church asks for the prayers from the community as our congregation begins the process of addressing the grief being experienced by everyone involved. When Jeanette's son and Candy's brother, Adam, was told of his mother and sister's murders, Adam said he began connecting the dots after he was over the initial shock. He said, quote, It's almost like I already knew what had happened and by whom. There was something deep down that was not surprising. Jeanette and Candy's funerals were held at Grace Lutheran Church on December 2, 2017. Andrew's funeral was held at St. Michael Catholic Church, also on December 2nd. During pretrial hearings on June 25, 2018, Christopher's defense made a motion to suppress incriminating statements he had made to the first police officer on scene. The defense said that whatever Christopher told Frazier before he was read his Miranda rights should not be allowed into trial evidence. The prosecution argued that, quote, in an emergency situation, a suspect can be handcuffed and placed in investigative detention prior to an officer reading a person his rights. The judge ruled in the prosecution's favor. At trial, the prosecution laid out the timeline of the days leading up to the murders, as well as the events of Thanksgiving Day. The prosecution theorized that Christopher planned the murders and sent text messages to Jeanette, Candy, and Andrew to make it seem like he feared for his safety. Christopher's defense attorney said he admitted to killing all three victims, but he killed them out of self-defense. The attorney submitted a photo of bruises on Christopher's chest into evidence and claimed that the bruises were from Jeanette. He claimed Jeanette assaulted Christopher on November 21st, two days before Thanksgiving. Even if that was true, it was two days before he murdered her. That's what we call a cooling-off period. And this is also what we call victim-blaming. But remember, Christopher's nephew was there and knew that Christopher had pushed Jeanette and tried to punch her. He had jumped in the middle of it and stopped his uncle. The bruises could have been from that. After this scene, Jeanette gave the nephew a gun that belonged to Christopher, apparently thinking it was his only gun. And then the nephew left the next morning, rather than staying through Thanksgiving. After that, the defense argued that Christopher's anger built up over 48 hours. His attorney also claimed that Christopher had tried to encourage Candy and Andrew to leave to defuse the situation. Christopher had texted Andrew and said, I'm sorry you stepped into a bad situation. It would seem that most of Christopher Gaddis's animosity was aimed towards Candy. Again, this makes me believe that it was only Candy actually living there and Andrew really was just visiting. But despite his claim that he was trying to defuse the situation, he was causing the situation. There was cell phone evidence of him screaming at both Candy and Andrew, and of course, at Jeanette. He was in a drunken rage. He was trying to throw the couple out, and he was violent with his wife. His attorney said that after the arguments outside the hot tub, Christopher went to his upstairs bedroom and could hear Jeanette, Candy, and Andrew belittling him outside. 
but none of the defense's arguments were helping. Instead, they seemed to be blaming the victims, claiming that they had somehow provoked Christopher. Finally, his defense attorney got him to agree to a plea deal. There was no way he could justify what he did. It was not self-defense. And they were not arguing an official mental defect defense either. Christopher Gaddis pled guilty on August 15, 2018, in Chesterfield Circuit Court to three counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony use of a firearm. The other two firearm charges were dropped. He was sentenced to 100 years for each first-degree murder charge, with 45 years suspended on each, to be served concurrently, and three years for the firearm charge. That is a total of 58 years in prison for a 59-year-old man. Virginia used to have automatic parole on what would be life sentences, as we learned in the previous episode. But Virginia abolished that form of discretionary parole in 1995. Instead, inmates must now serve a set amount of their sentence before becoming eligible for parole. On average, an inmate must serve at least 85% of their original sentence before being able to apply for parole. For Christopher Gaddis, that would be 49 years. He will die in prison. And Adam, as well as Andrew's family, were satisfied with the sentence. They just wanted justice, and they wanted it swiftly. Adam said, quote, As we see it, he's going to live out the rest of his life in prison, and that's what we wanted. Christopher Gaddis is currently incarcerated in Wallens Ridge State Prison in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. After the murders, Andrew's parents became close to Candy's father, Holger Coons. Nancy, Andrew's mother, said, We are all a family now. I'm glad they could come together after this tragedy. But my heart aches that two families came together because they lost their children. They were supposed to come together after their children married. It's hard reading different articles, especially early reports, making it seem as though Christopher Gaddis was a man who snapped. I have no doubt he was angry and growing more hostile over that three-day period, and there is much evidence to prove he was drunk. There are many studies about the dangers of alcohol combined with anger. A research article by the Association for Psychological Science reported that alcohol is a contributing factor in about half of all violent crimes committed in the United States, more than any other drug. But being drunk is not a defense for murder. Those text messages were strange, and perhaps a different attorney would have argued they showed a break with reality. But when you take them with the cell phone video evidence and what the nephew heard and saw, I believe the prosecution would have had no trouble convincing a jury that this was premeditated. Christopher Gaddis had time to cool off. He was upstairs for about an hour and a half before he started sending the text messages. Less than an hour later, he came downstairs and murdered three people in cold blood. People screaming and begging for their lives, his own wife and stepdaughter. And then he chased down Andrew Buthorn and made sure he was dead. This man was a youth minister. He showed every outward appearance of normalcy. It was only after the murders that the mask was pulled back. People often say the signs are there. Even Adam, Jeanette's son, said in hindsight, he could see it, 
but he didn't see it before. Christopher Gaddis kept getting off with a slap on the wrist when he broke the law. And though the police were called to his home seven times in eight years, including an incident with a weapon, no charges of domestic violence were ever brought against him. This wasn't the 1950s. Even if Jeanette had asked for charges to be dropped, that would be up to a prosecutor, not her. I can only assume that she called the police before her husband actually got violent. The police probably showed up, made sure everyone calmed down, and the man, who was known as a youth minister of a small town, was probably just told to cool off. And Jeanette may have minimized the situation once the cops showed up. We really can't know. I don't want to sound like I am blaming the police. Christopher Gaddis did wear a mask to the outside world. But that mask slipped off in an alcoholic rage on the night of the year when we are supposed to give thanks for our loved ones. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Coley Horner, and Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. Special thanks to Haley Gray for her diligent research on this case. I'm taking off next week to spend time with my family for Thanksgiving. I wish you all a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Please be kind to retail workers if you like to shop on Black Friday. And tip your servers and bartenders generously. These people work hard on the holidays, missing time with their own families. Don't forget to check out my YouTube channel if you're interested. It is still in the early stages, but the last few episodes posted are really cool. It's youtube.com slash southernfriedtruecrime. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on most large platforms like Stitcher and Spotify. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com. There you can sign up to be a patron of the show, make a one-time donation, or purchase show merchandise. That's southernfriedtruecrime.com. And if you have any case suggestions, please email southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. I cannot reply to every private message on social media, and many get lost. So email is best, and please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you guys. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.